Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I believe that every single one of us here can be successful in our own little niche, the way, you know, taking advantage of the gifts that we've been given. Welcome to the show. You are listening to the Real Estate Lab podcast. In this lab, we decode the stories, secrets, and skills of the most brilliant minds in real estate investing, then turn their wisdom into practical advice and knowledge that we can use to boost our income. And now, let's turn it over to our host, V. Hey there. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Real Estate Lab podcast. My name is V. Our special guest today is someone who specialize in an asset of real estate not many people are familiar with. He has over 20 years of experience. His businesses have been involved in more than 250 million in real estate projects, including land development, construction, and the acquisition, renovation, and disposition of several thousand single-family and multifamily assets. He served in the U.S. Army and began his entrepreneurial journey as a general contractor specializing in land development and construction of custom homes. After the turn of the century, he co-founded a company called Bakerson, a Phoenix-based capital management company, where he became extremely adept at sourcing off-market deals and fostering relationship with capital partners. Now, after 14 years at Bakerson, he sold his interest and joined Nate Petit at 5210. His website is 52ten.com. He is known for his ability to consistently find great real estate opportunities. He's a people person and understand what it takes to build a lasting relationship. Always strive to deliver the best experience in business. Outside of real estate, our guest put his time to his family, the outdoors, and teaching personal development. He lives in Phoenix with his wife and seven, yes, seven children. Now, ladies and gentlemen, our guest today is Mr. Jack Martin. You can reach him. His email is jack at 52ten.com. That's jack at number five, number two, letter T-E-N.com. Also, I would like to personally invite you to our free Facebook group where we share ideas and knowledge with each other. We have from time to time SEC attorneys sharing their tips, top syndicators sharing their new deals, what they're seeing in market. You can head on over to www.eastwestventures.co slash AIMS to join. And now this is my conversation with the one and only Mr. Jack Martin. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Lab podcast. Our featured guest today is Mr. Jack Martin. It's a pleasure to have you here, Jack. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here, V. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you, man. I really appreciate your time. So, Jack, let's take a step back to your, your childhood. Can you tell the audience a little bit how it was like growing up in your house? You know, I probably have a little bit of a unique childhood. I grew up in a family with 17 children. So I was one of the older ones. So I was fourth oldest in that, in that uh, chain of children. 
So I moved out of the house before the younger ones were even born. And um, as you can imagine, house that didn't have enough bedrooms and everybody's sharing bedrooms and, you know, large families kind of come with pluses and minuses. So, you know, the selfish side of a young boy wanted his own room and parents that had enough money to buy him new bikes and that kind of thing. Yeah. But the, you know, the experience growing up in a big family, I mean, there was always someone to play with or wrestle with or fight with if you wanted to do that, play games with, whatever. And there was a tremendous amount of uh, social skill set that was developed. I mean, you just got to learn how to deal with it, right? Uh-huh. In addition to that, I think one of the greatest blessings that I didn't appreciate at the time was that uh, when you grow up in a family where there's a lot of mouths to feed and there's no budget to accommodate for extras, you know, you're inspired to go get what you want on your own. So as a young boy, you know, I was doing paper routes and pulling weeds and doing whatever odd jobs around the neighborhood so I could buy that bike or so that I could buy shoes that were name brand instead of the ones from Kmart. So, you know, I grew up with that work, Midwestern work ethic and it's uh, served me well. Wow. So you hustle a lot at a young age. Yeah, well, you kind of had to. <laughs> they joke around that you know if you don't if you don't hustle then you don't eat and you're the skinny guy at the table. So <laughs> it, it wasn't that bad, but we were uh, you know we were certainly not wealthy growing up. Right. So now you were hustling a lot and you were um, doing all the side jobs. What were you like in high school? Did you have a strong mindset about you going to be an entrepreneur after this, or uh, what did you do at, in high school? Who, yeah, who were I you like? Interesting that you asked that question. So in high school, I think if we can all reflect and look at, I got high school kids right now, right? I didn't know what I was doing. I had no clue what I wanted to do next. I was just kind of living in the moment. So I didn't know if I wanted to go to college. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I was, I worked my way all through high school. So, you know, I was working full time as soon as, you know, there was, there was work available. So I went from paper outs to picking berries to working at a nursery to construction I and mean, I was working when in full-time in construction when I was 16 years old so school was kind of a secondary thing even though I almost got a straight A grade average so I was a good student but it just it really wasn't compelling to me to continue that that's tremendous man so you almost had straight A's grade but then you still think that school is not your path Well, I, I didn't know at that point that I had this entrepreneurial spirit within me that needed to be scratched. But that was probably the reason why um, I didn't pursue going to college. So after high school, I joined the military. I spent three years there. And that again, that was kind of, you know, something to do. A bunch of buddies that were going to go join. They were friends of mine and I jumped in with them. And um, we spent three years in the infantry and in the army. And when I got back, that's when I kind of started that entrepreneurial thing. And what, what year did you get back? I got out of the military in 1995 and I moved to Phoenix. So I already had a girl interest there. Every story includes a girl, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So she was young. She wasn't out of high school yet. So, you know, I needed to go to the military and kind of stay away. But uh -huh. um, I knew I was going to come back, likely going to, that, that relationship was going to get more serious. And, uh, and sure enough, I've been married to that girl for 23 years now. That's awesome. You guys have seven kids. 
We do. We got seven <laughs> kids. We can't compete with my mother and father, but hey, we still got a. We still got. We've been blessed. We have a lot of children. That's that's fun, man. And also, thank you for your service for serving, man. You're welcome. I did it for fun, so. <laughs> Why? <laughs> yeah, it was to me. It was I'm, a blast. Yeah, I'm sure you have fun, but you also learn a lot there. I, I feel like a lot of the um, teenagers nowadays they go to the military to find themselves, and and maybe you were doing a little bit of that too at that time. Yeah, there's a lot of good that comes out of the military. I can see how some countries make it a mandatory thing, and mm-hmm. it, it probably would improve the the general outlook of Americans if they did. But um, Of course, that's from the lens of somebody who's already been down that path, right? Right, right. So in '95, you came back. You moved to Phoenix, and you had a construction business all the way to 2002, I believe, right? Yeah, I got into general contracting. You know, our my my main business was framing concrete and and uh, building spec homes. Even though I did a bunch of other stuff, you know, ancillary to that, we had. Thirty to fifty employees, kind of ranging when it was crazy and when it was not. It was a good experience. We made money, but that's a it's a glorified babysitting job. Fifty construction workers, if you know what I mean. Oh yeah, definitely. You know, one of my business partners always tell me when you work with contractor, it's just like working with high school kids, no matter how old they are. It kind of is. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So then. You were doing this glorified babysitting job, and what made you switch over to、uh, doing real estate? Well, I think you know, in life, what I've discovered—I didn't know this then—but seems like relationships, you know, some of them are for a season, some of them are for a lifetime, some of them are just for an hour. I mean, there's these relationships kind of come into your life exactly when you're prepared for them. So, for both me and the other gentleman that. That was our first real business, the two of us. So I kind of feel like, from a confidence perspective, like we kind of needed partnership.、Uh-huh. But he wanted to, he wanted to to,、uh, to run the business by himself, and I was kind of tired of it. So it was a good, you know, we parted very amicably. We're still really, really good friends today. So he kept the framing and concrete business. I finished up the spec homes that we had, and it was time for me to go do something different. And right when one door closes, another one always opens. So literally within a month of me kind of closing the doors on that partnership, another opportunity showed up in my life, and that was the one with Bruce over there at Bakerson. And so with Bruce, you flip a few houses and ultimately switch over to wholesaling. You went on to become like. I believe one of the top wholesalers in the Phoenix area, closing almost a deal a day at that time. Yeah, it started out kind of as a, a hey, you want to build a rental portfolio? Sure, kind of a fun thing to do. We didn't even know if it was going to be a full time thing, and、um, you know we worked together really well. He was really really good at at finding deals that weren't on the market that were, you know, there's a lot of upside there. And I、uh-huh. had that construction background, so our our goal was hey, let's fix up. You know, three or four homes and keep one, and fix up three or four homes and keep one, and just keep doing that at that rhythm. And at some point, we'll have a rental portfolio that will build our retirement. So the problem is, Bruce is one of those guys that like to scale things. So pretty soon, he was finding homes at a faster pace than I could do anything with.、Uh-huh. And in a short period of time, I found myself building another glorified babysitting role. 
And that's the thing I wanted to get away from. So we stopped fixing them up and we would still do that occasionally and just cherry pick. But we uh-huh. started aggregating for other guys that were building portfolios or fixing flippers. And and yeah, at the end there, we did almost well, we did we did close to twenty five hundred uh transactions. So it was a lot. And um at the end there twenty twenty five hundred transaction over fourteen years. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, in the beginning, I think our first year we probably did like twenty, thirty deals and then we did fifty and then it just kept scaling from there. So that that last year it was almost a deal a day. And the last year was in twenty sixteen? No, the last year that we did houses was probably like 2013-ish, somewhere in there, because we switched to apartments. Did you wholesale apartment as well? Not really. You know, I got bored of the houses. You know, Bruce is like, okay, well, let's find something else. So we started doing smaller apartments in that, you know, under 30 unit space. Uh Uh-huh. And then quickly that became 50 units and 70 and 100, and that kind of became the value at apartments was a little bit... It's a slower paced business. It's a less crazy transactional uh, business, but there's still, you know, anybody who's really good at apartment syndications will understand that you could buy them, completely renovate them, raise the rent and put it back on the market in 12 to 18 months if you know what you're doing. So there's still a fairly quick uh, cycle in those. Uh And then kind of to fast forward to the end of, of that trajectory and in about 2000, I don't remember the exact year, but it was about seven years ago, I accidentally bought a mobile home park. So, and I fell in love. So I didn't know it at the time that that was kind of the seed for what I'm doing today. But um, that, you know, like when you first meet that girl, you don't know she's the one. Uh-huh. Right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, in 2016, Bruce and I decided to stay friendly um, he wanted to go one direction and build more of a family apartment business. I wanted to go another direction. So, you know, as as good friends should do, you know, we parted ways amicably and I went and started 5210 with Nate Petit. So this, the common theme I see here with your career so far is you don't know what you're doing, but you're taking action and you just dive in anyway. Yeah. So one of the things that I found to be a common theme is I believe that I'll be successful. And with that belief, I mean, I still think direction is critical. You need to know what you're taking on. Otherwise, you'll just wander around aimlessly, right? Right. So, but belief is a, is a really powerful component to success. You know, somebody could be given the entire blueprint, everything that I've ever done, but they don't believe they can be successful, they're not going to be. Yeah, you believe you it will lead to uh, your success and then... You do, a, you have get a little bit success, then your belief gets bigger. Yeah, that's that's pretty much how it's been. You know, yeah, you build on. You, you know, you're given the exact, um, you're given the the opportunities that you need for you to be successful, but you're also given the lessons and the 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 struggles that you need so that you can grow. Right. So now in 2016, when you started 5210 with Nate, you talk more about this company, what it does, and, and your business model for this company? So the business model at 5210 is, you know, from a 10,000-foot view, is to acquire mobile home and RV parks in the state of Arizona, specifically for recession-resistant cash flow. So, you know, there's obviously going to be value in the assets if we chose to 
sell them or flip them or finance them or whatever. But the key metric for us is cash flow. So one of the lessons that we can all learn if we look back at the crash of 2006, 7, 8, well, in some cases it was, you know, through 2010, you know, even if you've built uh, what you believe a really strong portfolio and you've put conservative debt on it and you're doing all the right things and you're a good character person, the market can still wipe you out. I mean, I got many, many friends and, and um, you know, guys that are experienced in the business that I'm associates with that have a story that they can share echoing what I've just said. They thought they were doing all the right things and they were being relatively conservative and the market crashed and they still got wiped out. So to go build something that you're going to put your life's ambition and, you know, a decade of your career into, you really want to make sure that you choose an asset class or a strategy that's going to survive a recession. So we don't know when the next recession is coming, but I think we all know that history tends to repeat itself. So there's one on its way. And, and so 5210 is really built around knowing that's coming and building a portfolio that will not only survive that, but it will thrive through that. So for mobile home, you're buying mobile home park and RV park. They're different than trailer parks, correct? Yeah, trailer parks is, well, they aren't and they are. I mean, you could call them what you want, but trailer parks, you know, in most people's description are the, the, the parks that you see on an episode of Cops. They're kind of run down, high density, tough areas of town or tough neighborhoods with drugs and crime and you name it. You know, those are what's, what's looked at as a trailer park. You know, there's, you can call a mobile home park, a trailer park, you could call it a manufactured housing community. You can call it, there's a whole bunch of names that you can call it, but ultimately there's really two kinds of parks. There's RV parks. Well, that's not fair. There's three kinds of parks. There's RV parks, which is like a motor home or a travel trailer pulls in and spends the night or a weekend and then they leave, right? So it's more like vacation rental. Yeah, so most, yeah. So that's what you'll see on the side of the highway or up in the mountains or whatnot, right? Right. Now there, And then there's mobile home parks and those are permanent homes that people live in full time. So, you know, there's more to it than that. But then in the middle, there's kind of a hybrid where these little miniature mobile home parks that they call park models. And you'll see those at like senior retirement communities that are more of a snowbird thing. So they're, oh, okay. they're little miniature mobile home sits there all year round. And these are nice. I mean, these don't have, I mean, people, people generally get the stereotype that mobile home parks is trash. That is not true. So those are only the ones that they're exposed to because they see it on TV, right? Right. And they hear about it. So trailer trash or that stereotype that's accurate for certain types of parks, but I don't invest in those. So there's parks that you would be absolutely blown away how nice they are. You know, there's a, a, a star rating of, of parks that goes from one star, which is that trailer trash, uh -huh. all the way to five star, which is like a luxury gated senior resort community. And you can't even get in there unless you qualify. There's They're really high uh, stringent qualifications to even be there. You got to have a certain income that you make. You know, your home has to be, a, you can't be more than 10 years old. They're like a well-managed gated, you know, residential community. So somewhere in the middle there lies the opportunities that I focus on. You know, parks that 
used to be really nice and they're a little bit run down and you could turn them around, but they're in good neighborhoods or parks that are mismanaged or they're being underserved. I mean, there's more, there's more purpose or there's more, there's more value that can come out of that property than what's being uh, delivered today. Uh So, you know, we focus on opportunities where there's a lot of upside. We're not just buying coupon clippers. We're buying parks that there's a lot of upside and they can be a coupon clipper as well. So you're more or less buying parts that you can add value and you know keep them long-term. Correct, correct, yeah. Got it, got it. So what's the optimal size of park that you like to buy? In the park business, um, there's a, you know, the way that you manage parks is quite a bit different than the way that you'd manage any other kind of real estate asset. And one of the things that's, you know, the thing that, that really separates parks from everything else is the fact that the tenants own the homes. Right. You know, so, so apartment complexes, your tenant can just come there and stay six months and leave. There's nothing there. There's no nothing to keep them there, right? Right. Home parks, if you're run correctly, the tenant has a vested interest in staying long-term because they have a home there that they own, right? So it's not just size that we focus on. It's also, you know, are we going to have permanent residents here? So like the RV park is more like a hotel, right? Right. If you had a, a mobile home park filled with with rental mobile homes, that's kind of like an apartment. Nothing keeps them there, right? So but you don't true, like park-owned homes? Yeah, I don't, mind, I don't mind them if we buy a park and it has them, but my goal is to convert those to, I want all my residents to have an ownership interest or a vested interest in staying long-term. So all my residents own their homes, and um, I own the park, and I, you know, it's kind of like having a giant parking lot, and people pay every month to park their car there, but in this case, it's their home. It's that kind of a, of, a, of a business. We take care of landscaping, utility, you know, servicing utilities and connections, common amenities like pools and laundry rooms and clubhouses and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. You know, every park's different. So some have them and some don't. But um, as it relates to size of park, the thing that separates kind of the smaller parks and the bigger parks, and it's right around 40 to 50 spaces where that happens, is really, really good on-site management and maintenance staff. So most parks, they'll run really good if you have a full-time manager that's in the office every single day. There's a lot of work to do at a park. People don't appreciate this. Then you also, because you're a lar- you know, parks require maintenance and you want to stay on top of them and keep the tenants or the residents there like excited that things are always going in the right direction, you got to have a full-time or a relatively full-time maintenance guy there. So they do capital improvements to the property as well as take care of things like things that go sideways, landscaping, pipes that break, you know, valves that don't work, whatever it is, right? So you just maintain the uh, the common area stuff. Yeah. So it's it's really roads, landscaping, trash or garbage enclosures and those kind of things, trees, you know, because there's a lot of times there's huge mature trees with shade. The office, the the pool, the laundry facility, you know, signage, all that kind of stuff. And then, of course, down in the granular level, like the valves that turn on and off sprinkler systems and water to the to the units and and um, metering. You got to read meters and 
you know, a lot, a lot of the utilities are metered. They'll come in on one master meter, but then they're sub-metered to all the individual units. So, and once again, every park is different, but the reason why we focus on parks that are larger than 40, 50 spaces is because you can't really afford to hire quality on-site staff and spread it over the number of units or spread that cost over the number of units that are there and still be profitable and have cash flow unless you have enough units. And that usually kind of starts in that 40 to 50 unit range. So typically, what's the lot rent in, in the parks that you guys buy in? Yeah, every market's going to be different. So like the Phoenix metro area, you'll see lot rents in the 500 to $800 a month range. But Phoenix okay. is a lot more expensive. I mean, it's a primary market, right? Right. Tucson, which is a secondary market, you'll see rents in the 350 to 450 range. And maybe you'll see it down as low as 300 you know, for a lesser quality park. And then when you get to smaller markets like Yuma, it gets as low as 200 a month. Oh, wow. So it just depends on the type of park, whether they're full-time residents or whether it's a, you know, like a, a seasonal snowbird thing. Uh-huh. I mean, some parks they'll charge once a year and you pay when you show up on October 1st and you pay for the whole year in advance. That's more common in the, in the, the seasonal snowbird parks. And some are just month to month. So it really depends. So the, I understand the lot rent. I understand they give you a purchase price when you're looking to buy this thing. But how do you underwrite a mobile home park? Well, that's a deep question because there's a lot more to it. But in a simple, to try to keep it simple for the purpose of your listeners, you know, a simple equation would be you take the number of lots in the park and you multiply that times the amount of lot rent that's you know, you could either do the current lot rent that the park is charging if you're buying it that way, but also what, where's the market, right? So you can do a performa based on the current lot rent for mm-hmm. the market, right? Right. And then in general, depending on the park and the amount of amenities and how it's run, you know, your expenses will run on the low side, somewhere in the 35% of gross range. Okay. And on the high side, they could be in the 50s. You know, if you have a fully amenitized senior RV park that's got some, you know, weekly, daily, monthly traffic, and it's got pools and clubhouses and, you know, all these things that, you know, let's say it's got fully landscaped lawns and, you know, you got to take care of this stuff, right? Right. Those could run closer to, you know, in the 50s. But kind of standard math for most people, just kind of quick back of the napkin uh, analysis of a property will be the number of spaces times the lot rent and take away 40% for expenses. That's pretty quick math. And that'll give you your net operating income. And from that, you just multiply that by the current or you divide it by the current um, cap rate in the marketplace. And there's your value. So what's the uh, cap rate that your company likes to buy in? To us, the cap rate really doesn't matter. You're looking for cash on cash more? I'm looking for cash flow, right? So just to give you an example, one of the best properties that we ever bought, the day we bought it, based on how it was performing that day, we bought it at about a 5.8 cap. So when people will say, well, how could you do that and still be able to produce the cash flow that you're going to produce? Well, first of all, they hadn't raised their rents in almost 10 years. So their rents were so far behind market. Of course, you can't just 
raise the rent in a year takes time to do that, right? Right. But in addition to that, the way that they were, they had third-party property management that was running the park, and they basically just gave them an open checkbook. So their expenses were running in the mid sixties percent range. Oh, so okay. yeah, it's crazy how much waste there was there, or the lack of, of you know, moving, lack of raising rent to market. So the cap rate, people get so fixated on the cap rate. The cap rate is not as important the day that you buy it as it is the day that you had it stabilized. So if you can run your performa, understand, well, the market rates, market rents are really X. And if our rents were there and we could move our expenses where they should be, this would be a nine cap deal or a 10 cap deal. Then that's something that you should pursue regardless of what the, the cap rate is in place when you're, when you're walking into the deal. So I focus on what can I do to the park when that's stabilized? How is it going to perform then? And how much cash flow is it going to deliver then? That's way more important to me than what's the cap rate going in. Got it. And then can you talk a little bit about when you say you get a park under contract, your due diligence work, what kind of things do you look for when you go to a park so that you know this is a good fit for you? Yeah, so due diligence to us, there's several hundred things that we'll look at. So this is a really long list of things. I'm extremely anal about due diligence. So there's four words over here at 5210 that we say all the time. We don't like surprises. Nobody does. I want to uncover everything. So back in the old days when I was buying houses, we would literally do a walkthrough that would take us like 10 minutes. Okay, we're buying that property. Because it was cookie cutter. It was very simple, right? You know, worst case scenario, okay, we missed a water heater. It didn't look like it was going bad, but it turns out it went bad. And what is that? 400 bucks. Right. Yeah. But in a mobile home park, if you miss something like um, it's got orange bird piping, that's uh-huh. 400,000 bucks, right? Yeah. <laughs> you can't miss that kind of stuff. So we're yeah, I had, super, I had one of those super, at my house too. <laughs> yeah. So you know about this. So what, you know, our, our due diligence kind of broken into phases. So initially when we open escrow, I'll spend... If there was a third party property manager that was running the property you know, prior to our entry, we'll spend our initial time working with them to kind of uncover all the skeletons that may be in the closet. So they're gonna know if there's some underground issues, you're gonna be able to see it in their M&R column, which is maintenance repairs for those people listening. But they'll typically be candid with you. I mean, they'd like to keep the, the job or if they're exiting, they'd like to make sure that they have a good name on their exit. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, while we're doing that research, I'm over at the county government level, either either city, county, state, making sure that our zoning is proper, that we have a proper zoning letter, that there's no um, outstanding permits or, you know, violations of any type. And this goes through the neighborhood services department, we the sexual offender list and we kind of go through everything as it relates to all the government um, offices so zoning planning development neighborhood services the sheriff's office the police office the fire department want to make sure there's no fire marshal outstanding stuff so we like to really get clarity as it relates to and if there's a well or a septic system we want to go talk to the the health department if that's in arizona it's called the Arizona Department of Environmental Quality. But you want to make sure that you've 
see that the, everything is in compliance. Then you still want to look at business licenses and all the kind of stuff. If there's a pool, there's going to be a pool license. I mean, there's all these government. So we check. There's a long laundry list of things that we'll check off. But if any of those things is exists, it could be a deal killer well in advance of you spending money doing physical inspections of the property. So that's the first kind of high level thing that we look at. And then once we're comfortable that there's no major issues there well then we go find qualified contractors that are either already familiar with the park or at least they work in that general area yeah so i don't go you know get a contractor to drive 300 miles to go do an inspection on a park unless it's a specialty thing so i do have like because you've been in the business long enough i have specialty like electrical contractors that are that's all they do is electrical underground electrical for mobile home parks. So if mm -hmm. I run across something where I know there's going to be something like that, I'll give those guys a nice fee, a travel fee to go down there and, and check it out. But that's pretty rare that you run across something like that. So normally I go through electrical underground plumbing. If there's a well, it's a well guy. If there's septic, I get a septic guy. You know, all the contractors that you're going to need. If there's a home there, I'll get a home inspection because sometimes there's an office or a single family home used as an office. Uh -huh. So we'll just get a local building inspector to go three or 400 bucks and they'll go give you every little thing that could be wrong with that home. And especially if you're syndicating assets, you want to make sure that there's, there's a budget to allocate for everything. You don't want to just be winging it. Right. Right. So the first question that you want to ask new contractors is, um, are you familiar with mobile home parks? Because if they're like, nah, I've never done one, but I could at next, you want to move on. You got to find yeah. specialists. So, yeah, you want specialists that that's, they already are familiar with it. So there's a bit of work. You know, sometimes I'll spend two full days pounding the phone, talking to contractors, and half of them won't, won't call you back because, you know, it's kind of a specialty little niche, right? Right. So once you identify them, then you engage with an actual, I'll try to get a date or a, a window where they'll meet me at the park and we'll do all the inspections in one day. If we can coordinate it, we'll do that. If not, then we do it in a series of days and we'll just be down at the park at a hotel for that series of days. So, so we kind of break it up. So it seems like there are a lot of moving parts to this when you, when it comes to due diligence and, and like you said, it, it's a lot of things that you want to look at and you don't want any surprises. So for someone who is new, who want to get into the game, do you have a book or a course that you would recommend them check it out? No, I don't. There's a there's a group of guys that run a course called MH University, Frank and Dave. I don't know if you've run across their stuff. Yes, yes. You know, their boot camp is pretty good. When I was young, I went to it just to see if I could learn something. And um, even if you think you're experienced, you always pick up that one thing. Correct. A couple things. So. Yes. It was worth going. I kind of got validation for the things that I do. You know, they do a pretty good job of you know making a list of things that that you'd want to do. I we just take that to the next level. So we get really, really granular, and it's because we don't like surprises. Right. So yeah, and what you'll find out is if you do discover a surprise, you know, it's not the end of the world if it doesn't kill the deal. You know, you can kind of collect all these surprises that you find and bring those back to the seller and sometimes they'll remedy them for you. 
Sometimes it's a simple remedy, sometimes it's not. Bought a park once that had a collapsed, had several collapsed septic systems. So we showed the report to them and they said, oh, well, we'll fix those. So it was nice. We didn't have to budget for that, right? Yeah. So, those or you'll get them to say, I don't want to do it, but I'll just, um, you know, knock the price down and accommodate for it. Then, you know, the, essentially that money is there then, right? So, right, right. Yeah. So what about if someone who is um, interested in the idea, but they don't have the time to learn or the desire to learn, how can they invest into this asset? Yeah, so there's really kind of two or three ways that people can invest. So first of all, I think the most important thing for an investor, if they like mobile home parks or they like that kind of asset class, that you want to invest with somebody who's an expert at it. You don't want to find out that, oh yeah, it was some guy that was just excited and hard worker. And now I'm teaching him how to do mobile home parks and I don't even know how to do them myself, right? Right. So I think the, the most critical thing is to, if you're going to partner, and there's a couple different ways that partnerships work, but if you're going to partner, you definitely want to work with somebody who's got a track record of experience. So particularly, that's their specialty. So mobile home parks, you know, when I first got started in parks, I thought, because I was an apartment guy, right? Right. So I thought it can't be no different than apartments. It just looks different. And nothing could be further from the truth. They aren't even cousins. They're so far apart, it's unbelievable. In their behavior, you know, the first thing that kind of jumps out is the tenant profile for an apartment complex is a temporary housing solution. Almost every apartment tenant thinks they're just going to be there for a little bit of time. Right. Very few of them say, I'm going to live in an apartment for the rest of my life. So the mindset is this is temporary. And in a mobile home park, it's permanent. They choose to live in a mobile home park or in a mobile home because they have ownership. And they got to park it. They get to park right, in their, right next to their front door every day. They don't have to walk up any flights of stairs. And there's no other tenants on the other side of the wall or above them or below them. Or, you know, in the community, everybody knows each other. So, you know, if you're in a apartment complex and you walk through as a stranger nobody even bats an eye you walk through a mobile home park where all the residents own their homes you will not make it through that park before somebody says who are you what are you doing here it's a way different culture and it probably doesn't get the kudos that it deserves because of the stereotype the trailer trash kind of stereotype right at first i i actually thought you know mobile home park to go visit one you should pack heat when you go <laughs> <laughs> you're thinking of the wrong parks <laughs> <laughs> but yeah the people that live in in the parks that we have these are like regular working class people or seniors or you know they're just choosing to live in a mobile home park because it's a lower more affordable place to live but they own their own home They do just fine. They, you know, they're either on, you know, some of the seniors are retired and on social security, but most of them have jobs. They go to work every day and they come home and this is their home. So they take care of their own little yard. They plant their gardens. You know, they got a little, you know, yard or the storage area and a covered porch. And it's way different. The experience of living in a mobile home park is way different. So, you know, I thought it was the same as apartments, but it turns out it's not. So the type of tenant or the type of resident that is attracted to a mobile home park 
the way that you manage them and the way that your relationship works with them, it's kind of a partnership in, in, in some way. You know, you show them that you're serious about creating an environment that's going to be a good one for them, and they're more than happy to accommodate you with your increase in rent. So, but it's, if you treat it that way, that this is kind of a partnership, you give first and then they give back. And that's just kind of how, how we approach it. That's not what you'll see on the news. People will buy a park and they'll raise the rent. They don't do anything. They don't fix anything. They don't make any improvements. So the you know, resident experience there is like, well, what just changed? New owner came in, he didn't do anything. He didn't address any of the things that are broken. He just raised the rent. I don't like the new owner. Right, and it's, it's hard for them to move, right? If you're a new owner, you come in and you just raise rent that you don't do any improvement to the park. You know, these people, it's not like it's easy for them to, to just haul their mobile home out of there. You know, as a, one of the things that makes mobile home parks more stable than, in my opinion, and I've owned about six different asset classes of real estate, But what makes mobile home parks more stable than anything I've ever owned is the fact that the tenants own the home. And really, if they decide for whatever reason that they want to move, now it could be that they have a family member that needs them to move back to the other side of the country, right? Or they get a new job in a different state or whatever it is, right? Yeah. It could also be, I got a girlfriend and she lives on the other side of town. I mean, that happens too, right? So if you're think about this in terms of the apartment tenant, they just pack their stuff and in about 12 hours they're gone. No, you didn't get a notice. You have no. You just found out. They, they just paid the rent. They're gone, and all they really leave there is their deposit. Yippee! But they also left behind a vacant unit that needs paint and carpet and whatever other damage repaired, and the deposit's not even enough to accommodate for that. And then you got a month with no income. And then you're marketing it, and that costs money. And you probably have to give away some kind of incentives, or you know, it depends on where we are in the market, of course. But that's a really, really expensive event for an owner of a property. So in a mobile home park, they own their home. So if they say, "Well, you know what? I want to move," they really have three options. One, they sell their home. So they put on Craigslist, or they come into the office and say, "Hey, I want to move, so it's time for me to sell." And we look on our waiting list and say, "Okay, well, we got a couple people. Let us help you with that." Or they put it on Craigslist and they answer the calls themselves, or whatever happens. And they get a new buyer. That buyer comes into the office and signs a new lease and qualifies, right? Because we don't just let any old buddy come into the park. And then right. they take the keys. They pay that guy and they get the title and they take the keys. That's their home now, right? But what just changed for me? Nothing. As the nothing. Just a different person paying my lot rent every month. It's the only thing that changed for me, and I didn't even miss a month of lot rent. I have to do no repairs. Nothing changed for me. But that guy moved. His second option would be to move the home. It's just not economically smart, so they rarely ever do that. Moving a home in Arizona, you got to go get permit for it, and you got to get you know an A dot or like a Department of Transportation. Contractor that's qualified to move homes on the road. You got to pilot cars, and it's all this stuff, right? It costs between four and seven thousand bucks. So it's it's just not economically smart. You know, if somebody wants to move on the other side of town to a different park, 
they'd be better off selling their home and buying a home in the other park, unless they're really in love with their home, right? right. So that rarely ever happens. I mean, it's only happened in the history of my experience one time. It does happen. You know, people are in love with their home and they move it out. So, or, you know, a family member dies and, um, and their kids have the right to the home and they decide they want to move it on their parcel of land. I mean, so it does happen, but it's rare. I think the point of this is rare. And then the third option, they can abandon it, which that happens as well. We've had that happen. So people are like, I don't want to deal with it. I want to sell it. I'm just out of here later. Well, as the owner of the park, we have the right. It takes us about 120 days to file for abandoned title and we own that asset. So because they owe us rent, right? Right. So it's a, and in that scenario, you know, once we own it, we'll do whatever necessary repairs are to it and we'll sell it and it will probably be a profitable event for us. You know, we'll sell it for whatever it's worth in the marketplace. So somebody's laziness end up to be a, a win to us. So, but the, I think the message behind that, when you see the mechanics of, of how mobile home parks work, there's just way less tenant turnover. So in our experience in general, apartment tenants or residents will move like every 12 to 15 months. And in the mobile home park space, they'll move every 12 to 15 years. It's way different. So that's what creates the stability of cash flow. It seems like this is a perfect solution because when someone move in the apartment world, it's an expense to the owner, but in mobile home park, it's an expense to the park resident. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And it's not necessarily an expense. It's just becomes an obligation or a process that, that they're, it's there. It's less like having a car. If you had your car parked in a space and you were paying for the space, you wouldn't just leave it there. You'd sell it. Correct. So it's got value. People don't just walk away. It's not, it's not common for people to walk away from something that's, that they paid for and it has value. So and there's cases where they'll come to us and say, hey, I got to move. We got to move in a, in a rush and um, I don't want to sell it. But, how, you know, how about I just give it to you and you guys sell it and send me a check or I'll just give you a deal and just pay me right now. And maybe they give us a discount on the, on the home. So that happens too. So I think the message here is if you do the, your job right as a park operator and your management team on site has a relationship with all the tenants, you don't get surprised in the middle of the night with somebody doing something that's not congruent with your park, you know, the, the interests of the park. They'll approach you and say, hey, I got this little issue coming up. Um, help, can you help me solve it? And then we help them solve it. Sometimes that benefits us. Sometimes it doesn't. But usually when it's really urgent, you know, they'll give us a discount or whatever. Wow, Jack, this is a relationship business and you don't see this happen in any other assets class at all. Would you put your energy into building a strong relationship with a resident whose mindset is, I'm leaving soon? Not really. So think about it. Your apartments, single family home, rentals, condo, all those rentals, that's what that is. You know, there's occasions and there's plenty of stories out there where somebody has been a tenant for you for 20 years. Like that still happens, right? Right. But if you're looking at single property where, where, you know, hundreds of people live on a single property, it's uncommon. 
to have somebody that lives there month to month stay for 20 years. It's not uncommon in a mobile home park. We've got one park. There was a tenant that lived there for 44 years. Oh, wow. 44 yeah. years. 44 Jeez. years. Same. Well, it was the grandmother. And then, of course, she had kids and the, the daughter, you know, was the one that was kind of running the house. But mom was still there and dad had passed away. It was, it was 44 years they've been there. Like, there's the, the mom was raised, born and raised in the park. Oh, wow. Oh, man. Lifetime resident. It's great. So, Jack, now it's the um, time for a rapid fire round where I ask our guests the same questions throughout. You ready? Yeah. Fire away, my friend. Question number one. What is the one special ability that you wish you had? I wish I could wave a magic wand. Well, I have this special ability, but I wish I could wave a magic wand and predict when the next great opportunity is going to show up so I could plan for it. That's like the the best thing ever. (laughs) You know, the secret sauce in any business is you make your money when you buy. So if you can buy great deals, and that's all we do, but can't predict the speed at which they come. So I'd love to have that magic wand. All right. Question number two. Which single habit gives you 80% of your results? Well, I'll answer that in two parts. So in business, the single habit is the thing that we call KPIs. For those listening who don't know what that is, it's key performance indicators. And these are the things that you do on a weekly basis that you, when you track them, the more of it that you do, the more results you get. So for me, the number of relationships that I can create with owners of assets that I'd want to buy and the work that I do, phone calls or whatever it is that I do, that's the key performance indicator that will make the most impact in my business. But on a personal level, what I do every morning before I start my day has more impact than anything else that I could do. So, you know, I have a morning routine that includes some quiet time or some silence, you know, some people call it meditation, just to practice ignoring the noise that's always around us because that'll show up and it'll distract you. I spend some time doing some exercise. I spend some time in prayer. I spend some time in affirmations. And then I spend some time thinking of others, you know, praying for others. So that right there kind of sets the tone for my day. So I know today's going to be amazing well in advance of ever even experiencing it. And I don't get distracted by circumstance or other people or, you know, the actions or words of other people. So visualization of your day helps you have a better day. You know, I like to, well, there's, there's occasions where something is new. I'll want to spend some time visualizing how I expect it to go. But visualization for me is a little bit um, zoomed out, a little bit bigger picture. Mm-hmm. that I practice the experience of success and what I think it's going to look like in, in a long-term perspective and the feelings associated with already having achieved that. Well, it's like, what is it going to feel like when I ask this girl to marry me and she says, yes, you practice that feeling well in advance of even having the girl of even have or have had the girlfriend. That's what I'm talking about. It's that kind of thing. Yeah. You got to practice for success. You got to see well, it too. Well, like, people well, don't really appreciate that 
practicing how it's going to feel super super important because we practice our feelings every day v but we practice what humans will naturally be inclined to do is they'll practice the feelings of fear worry anxiety concern doubt failure they practice all of that like oh, i don't know if i should do this i'll probably fail and they're practicing that feeling of failure right well to set your day right practice success what's it going to feel like when i'm successful in blank i practice that so in during the day when there's some kind of circumstance that shows up that would give me evidence of you know something contrary to that i have something that i can remember i've been practicing this and i could just pivot right to that like i don't know why that circumstance shows up and then just practice the success right it seems a little woo woo far-fetched but that has had a tremendous impact on my life that's great man so what is another profession other than your own that you think it will be fun for you to attempt you know when i'm done with real estate i want to teach people how to live intentional lives so not only do i think it would be fun to experience it's something that i intend to do so i believe that every single one of us here can be successful in our own little niche the way you know taking advantage of the gifts that we've been given but we get so sidetracked trying to live this instagram life or try to copy the other guy that we fail to you know look within and see what's in there so i would really like to teach people how to do that i look forward to that I'll go to your course for sure. You're you're so amazing. I mean, some of the stuff that you're sharing today is just mind blown. Well, thank you. So, how has investing in real estate helped you fulfill your dream or life goal? Uh, interesting. Well, certainly investing in real estate, especially if your goal is to create cash flow, eventually buys you freedom of time. So nothing ever really buys you true freedom, but you can get your time back, and with that you can go do what you want to do, right? So, I, I think that that's the goal for me, and that's the experience that I've had. You know, in the beginning when we were flipping all those houses, there was large checks that would hit the table on a regular basis, and that was really fun. But the moment that we stopped flipping, you know, if you stop flipping houses in a couple of weeks, there's no more to sell. Or no more to sell, right? Right. Or if you stop buying houses to flip, right? So it's kind of like the business, you know, where you have stock on the shelves. As soon as you sell your last piece of stock, you, there's no more business, right? The thing I really like about the cash flow business is that as long as you have really sound uh, processes and you you do a good job hiring the right people and you have systems in place, that that cash flow can go on. Indefinitely, that's powerful. Definitely. And then my last question for you is: Who do you think I should interview next on a future episode of the Real Estate Lab podcast? Oh, interesting. So, what's the flavor of? I mean, are you staying focused on on mobile home parks, or are you guys, you know, kind of broad? What's your What's your? Um... So, our audience are typically. People who wanted to invest in real estate, they have also they have their day job, right? So they're maybe looking for another project to invest in, so that they can 
quit their day job. So it could be mobile home park, which I think is an interesting investment vehicle, and I will definitely learn more about this asset class. But also maybe apartment and some other things that you have already uh, invested in. Well, I, the first thing, idea that comes to mind is my business partner because he's so into the nuts and bolts, but he's difficult to understand because he's so into the nuts and bolts. So he gets so granular. It's the perfect partner to have because there's no I that doesn't get dotted or T that doesn't get crossed. But yeah, that's the first one that comes to mind. That's Nate, right? That's Nate, yeah. Awesome. Do you think you can make an introduction? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I can. Awesome. Now, Jack, if people wanted to follow up with you after this show, how do they um, get a hold of you? You know, the best way to get a hold of me or to get on my calendar is to go to our website, and that's 5210.com. But that's the number 52, and then 10 is spelled out. So it's 52ten.com. And then you can go to the contact page, and you can even schedule an event to get right on my calendar. That's all the time we have for today's show. Jack, you've been incredible. I really appreciate your time. I learned a ton. I know you're extremely busy. You're awesome for sharing time with us and the knowledge with us. Well, B, thanks for inviting me. You know, one of the things that I've discovered in my life is that when you give, life gives back. But it rarely ever gives back from the same source through which you gave to So it's a really important lesson. We all have something to give. Sometimes it's money. Sometimes it's time. Sometimes it's experience. Sometimes it's wisdom. So, you know, for all of your listeners out there, every one of you has something to give. And if you give, you'd be surprised how life will give back to you. That's right, man. You're you're awesome. I am excited to see what you and Nate do at 5210 and uh, what you guys are going to accomplish in your future. Thank you, V. You have a blessed day, and uh, let's both get back to work. Loved the episode of the Real Estate Lab podcast? Share the show with all your friends. Subscribe and give the show a five stars rating on iTunes. Until next time, have an awesome work week.